Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Today on the show, we've got Navy veteran, private investigator, and host of Mysteries Decoded. Jennifer Marshall. And I know that there's going to be people who watch the episode and say, oh, those people are just fame and fortune seeking. What a bunch of garbage. I'll tell you this. There were two people involved with the 2004 incident off the USS Nimitz battle group who have talked to me confidentially off the record. I cannot and will not use their names. They were not included in the show. These people backed up and gave me additional information as to what we show in the program. So if the people on the program are doing it for fame and fortune, what are these other two people doing it for? They have nothing to gain. They have everything to lose. They came to me as a fellow Navy veteran in confidence and said, yes, this is what happened. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. Before we get to this week's interview, I want to take a few moments to thank all my new Patreon subscribers. To Morgan, Violetta, Ed, Chad, Gremlin73, Richard, Eric, Chris, Robert, Uniloves, Patrick, and Josh. Every single one of you, past and present, have made the show continue and grow. While the show is free to consume every week, It's not free to create, so your monthly Patreon contributions help cut costs considerably so that I can focus on bringing you quality content. I honestly don't know what I would do without you all, so again, my sincere thanks. If you'd like to learn more about the Patreon campaign and learn about levels and rewards you get in return, visit patreon.com slash skies. Alright, and on to this week's guest... You know her as my co-investigative partner on the CW TV special, Roswell, Mysteries Decoded. And today, we talk in-depth about how it all came to be, her military career, her acting career, and then we go deep into our investigation into the Roswell incident, what Jennifer is looking for now in her new series, Mysteries Decoded. And we tease our upcoming episode, where we investigated the highly classified military base, Area 51. The episode premieres Tuesday, September 10th on The CW. But for now, I hope you enjoy this interview with Jennifer Marshall. Ryan, thank you so much for having me. You will hear my cat purring. He's right next to the mic, so um, the more the merrier. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. If there's anything my show needs, it's cat purring, for sure. (laughs) Are, you're going to hear the subway in the background because oh my gosh, I it's love New it. York. It's, it's, it's the ambiance. I, I, can, I can dig it. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. We're on different coasts. We get those two different vibes. So it's going to be great. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for the invite. Finally, we made this happen. I've had people <laughs> asking for months and months, like, why didn't you do a interview when you're 
the Roswell special came out. So we're both so busy, but now we have so much more to talk about. Yeah, it was insane. We had talked about it back then, but we were really, really busy. And Roswell just happened like a complete tornado. It happened, it was done. And then, yeah, go, go, go. Oh my God, it was a whirlwind. And then we'll get to what grew from that, obviously. But um, Mm -hmm. before we sort of get to uh, why I brought you on today, Mysteries Decoded, your new show on the CW, I love to get the origin story of like how people came to to research or investigate the paranormal, UFOs, uh, just mysteries in general, and um, and kind of our origin story of how we started working together. So before we get to that part, let's start even earlier. Can you give us a little background on your time in the Navy and uh, what made you go down that path? Yeah, so I joined the Navy when I was 17. I was five weeks out of graduation, high school graduation. I grew up in a one-stop light town, and there were nine veterans in my family. So it was just one of those things where, you know, one of us was going to join. It ended up being me and not my brothers. But I joined. I, I served for five years. I had an incredible time when I was in, and I really just feel like it set up the path for who I was to be when I finally grew up, per se. So I I love the Navy. I can't say enough good things about it. Yeah, and I do want to ask you later on about uh, the connections you still have with veterans, because this is um, something that I'm very passionate about as well. It's something that a lot of people in the, I would say, the civilian world don't think of often. Mm -hmm. So we'll get to that a little later. But um, so Navy and then the acting career. So how did this happen? How do you go from being in the military to being an actor on television? You know, if you would have told me 15 years ago, you're going to get out of the Navy and you're going to be on Netflix's number one show and you're going to have a show of your own on the CW, I would have slapped you silly. There's no way. That's not, that's not Jennifer. That's not possible. That's not a thing. So, I mean, growing up, without much money, that's a career for other people. You don't ever think that that's something for you. But basically, I stumbled into it because, you know, I touched on this in the Montauk episode, but I had gotten sick from the anthrax shots when I was in the Navy, and it put an end to what I had hoped would be a 20-year career. I was in for five years at that point. I got sick. I had to get out. And, you know, I had this friend who was on a local commercial and I said, how did you do that? And he said, oh, I take classes at this local studio and I got paid $400 for that commercial. (laughs) So at the time I thought $400 for a half a day of work, that's a lot of money. Let me, let me go see if I can do this. So I started taking classes at this place and I booked my first job two weeks in. You hear about so many people getting involved in the acting world or the entertainment industry through commercials. And for any of us out there living in, you know, here in New York in the theater world that pays so, so little. Um, Mm -hmm. And the rewards you you reap are more just like, you know, the satisfaction of having done a show eight times a week or something. But when you get into the commercial world and you're you're there for, you know, maybe maybe 12 hour day or whatever, but then you you realize how much the paychecks are for. That is where it's at people. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that commercial that I was talking about was a non-union commercial in a local market. But if you get into commercials that are union, if it's a big spot, a Coke spot, you could make 50 grand, 100 grand. I mean, it's not as common as it used to be. More and more spots are going non-union. But if you can nail one of those, I mean, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of residuals. 
that's that's what I like. I'm not in it just for the satisfaction. I need to get paid it's too. It's a business, yeah. It's a business. I'm a businesswoman. So, um, you know, I don't tend to book that many commercials. I tend to book more film and TV, which is weird because most people book more commercials and they find it harder to get into film and TV. So I'm an odd duck that way. Well, you did mention one of the number one shows on Netflix. So I got to out you here. What are some of the, I guess, the more high profile things you've been involved with, if you don't mind telling us your little Hollywood uh, career here? Yeah, I, you know, I've worked in TV and film here in Los Angeles since 2013. So since that time, I I booked Stranger Things. So I play Max's mom on Stranger Things. I had an amazing guest star on Hawaii Five-O playing Lieutenant Colonel Bailey. She's a joint mortuary affairs officer who oversees the dignified transfer of one of our airmen killed in Kabul. So that was a very meaningful episode for me. I was guest starring as a very strict head, headmistress named Marlene on Nickelodeon's Game Shakers. I've I've been in several films, uh, both that went straight to TV and then straight to DVD and then some that were in the theater. So thankfully, I've been very busy since I've been here. Um, but of course, Stranger Things was really the role that kind of turned everything for me. And after I booked that, I couldn't tell anybody until it aired. So that's that was, hard. That was terrible. I wanted to, you know, jump up and tell everybody, but you can't because you risk getting fired and or sued. Oh yeah, and I mean these NDAs—they're—they're they're no joke. I mean we couldn't—we couldn't talk about what we were doing for a while. I remember, no. even though the turnaround was very quick. Um, oh, it was so quick, and people would ask me what are because they knew that I was out of state and they knew that I was, you know, because where we were at, there was no cell service. So I had to explain to my, my reps, you know, where I was, but I couldn't really go into specifics. So you just have to have a great relationship with, you know, your boss, your reps, whoever it is that you kind of report to and hope that they understand that you're not working on just some crackpot something. (laughs) Right. And you know, I mean, when you told all your reps and everyone that you were in Roswell, they were probably like, what? When I told everyone I was in Roswell, (laughs) they were pretty damn sure they knew why I was there. So I, uh... oh, well, with you, of course. Yeah, I think I think with me, they were just like, what are you doing? And they, they knew in theory, you know, they know our, our client's a private investigator. They joke with me about things sometimes, but I don't think that they expected it, nor did I expect it to lead into a TV show. That was never really the thought process behind me getting into it. Same here. I mean, I knew we were doing a one-hour special, and it had always been a dream of mine to investigate the Roswell case. So even even if it never went anywhere after that, I was... I was so happy that I was literally being, like, whisked off to the desert where something crashed in 1947 to live out this fantasy I'd always had of speaking to people who found stuff out there or talking to the granddaughter of, like, the main military officers. So I got to ask you, how did how did the opportunity for you come about with Roswell Mysteries Decoded? For me, it was a chance meeting, as these things often are, at AlienCon, uh, where our executive <laughs> producer Gary right. uh, met me, but how did how did it come about for you? You know, it's funny. I was brought in for a I, I don't want to say exactly what it is, but it was something on History Channel, and they brought me in uh, because I had they they knew I had a background in naval aviation. I think 
they thought I was maybe a pilot or something like that because people assume naval aviation. No, I just worked in logistics, but I went in anyway. And they said, you know, we're looking for an investigator with a background in this. And I, you know, I talked to them. They said, yeah, the network didn't think that you were a fit for that. Could you come back? Because we want to pitch you for a show. And you get this all the time living in Hollywood. So I went in and and we did kind of like a reel and I just remember I was very sass, very sassy with them. And Dan will tell you I was very sassy. And then they had called me and they said, hey, do you remember you came in and you did this reel? And I said, yeah, they said, we need to pitch you for something else. Can you come in so we can reshoot some of it? So I went in, they weren't very specific. And then they were telling me that they pitched a bunch of other people to be your partner. And the network was kind of meh, we're not really into that. And then they told me, you know what, you're the person that, that we want. Um, you're the person the network chose. You and Ryan are going to get together and, and go to Roswell for this. And I think I had three days notice. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that it oh was my gosh. insane. <sighs> I know we, we met at the airport for the first mm-hmm. time. And trying to do all that research was, yeah. you know, I had, because that's not my area of expertise. So I had three days to just, I literally was scouring everything from 12 to 18 hour days. And for the listeners, you know, on Mysteries Decoded, on Roswell Mysteries Decoded, we have researchers behind the scenes. So Ryan and I are certainly up to snuff, but there's no way we could cover all of that. Right. Especially when I got into shooting the series, you know, you're shooting a new episode every two weeks. So unless Unless I want to abandon my family and go into a library 24-7, I'm not going to have as, you know, the knowledge that I would need working on a regular case. So Ryan and I had some some really great um, researchers who work at the production company who helped us as well. Absolutely. You know, one of those two is a, he was actually just on the show last week, Alejandro Rojas, who was our mm-hmm. consulting producer. And mm-hmm. I mean, this guy's life is UFOs 24-7. So, I mean, I'm so happy they brought him in. And that's what they do. They they find people who know these things. They collaborate with you and I. And that's when we can really start to do the research. Because like you said, it's at the end of the day, it's television. Like mm-hmm. these things happen very quick. And they're, they can be very stressful. So we don't have months and months to prepare and sit in that library, like you said, to to look at these things. So, I mean, there was stuff I was learning from our researchers and from you. So I have to give you credit for, you know, literally doing a crash course, no pun intended. (laughs) See what I did there? Yeah. Um, I like it. (laughs) Thank you. With Roswell. And uh, I am so happy that they went with you because I, I can't imagine having done that with anyone else. You were so patient and understanding and open-minded, I think is the big thing when it comes to this. Like every network, when they want to do one of these investigator shows, they want that cookie cutter Mulder and Scully thing. And mm-hmm. I think it was smart. You and I went into this saying, look, let's not play these roles. Let's say what we really want to say. And I think that was great that we had that opportunity to do that because you don't see that often. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, for people listening who watched Roswell or, or they watched the show itself, of course, there's editing to kind of make it, you know, a little more he said, she said, uh, you and I definitely have our own opinions of things that went on there. But I think what's What's wonderful about us is we can just say, you know what, 
I don't agree with that. You don't agree with that. We think differently, but that's okay. Rather than what's really common in society. Oh, you don't believe what I believe. Okay. Well, you're not worth my time and and see you later. And I think that both of us got stronger because we were not in an echo chamber. We were challenging each other. And I just, I loved working with you. And again, on area 51, because you are so passionate about the subject matter. And even if I wasn't interested at all, which I am, but let's say I wasn't just your passion makes it interesting. It makes me want to learn more. Oh, that's extremely kind of you to say. And I think that's rare to find people so passionate about these topics that maybe they'll change your mind, but at least you're open to the possibilities. I mean, you come from a very evidence-based background, as you Mm -hmm. have to in the kind of work that you do outside Mm -hmm. of acting. So, I mean... I knew full well going in, like, I'm not going to be able to prove shit to Jennifer. Like, this is UFOs. (laughs) This is Roswell. We've been trying to prove this thing was a cover-up for 70 years, or even longer, proving that it was alien. (laughs) So I think it was so refreshing to see something on television that didn't say, you think this, I think this, we're never going to agree. Because I think you and I both came out of that project being like, whoa, we kind of had an entirely new door opened after hearing some interesting stories in Roswell. So mm-hmm. I do kind of want to touch on that a little before we get to Mysteries Decoded is oh, uh, yeah. what were some of the highlights of your time in Roswell and that evidence, like I said, that we uncovered? What, you, what really resonated with you? You know, I think what sticks out to me about that episode in particular being at the crash site, being there and realizing that what I had assumed and what I had thought in my head, it completely was not that. Some some other things came through. The man, are we going to talk about the man who Let's came do up? It. Okay. I, I think this is a great story to tell because, again, with television, there's things that just don't make it on. And this is yes, one of the most pivotal yes. moments you and I had. Yes. So, you know, when you go to shoot in Roswell, people assume that you're making TV or film about aliens or extraterrestrial craft. That's what they assume. So the morning that we were shooting at the diner, someone came over to one of our cameramen and said, hey, what are y'all shooting? And the cameraman said, we're shooting a documentary on groundwater. (laughs) (laughs) And, And the man said, well, good, good thing you're not talking about the aliens. And he said, what do you know about aliens? And this man basically told the cameraman, um, who is a very reliable person. He's, he's not someone who would lie about this or anything like that. He's actually, it's, it's actually funny that he was working on the type of show that we were doing because he's even more of a, more of a skeptic than I am. So, um, and he's very soft spoken. So, so I, I know that this happened and he did not just, you know, say, I'm just going to say this, not, not a thing with him. So a man walked up to him. He said he was working on a documentary with groundwater. He said, this is what I know about aliens. And so the cameraman just sat there and listened. And the man claims that, oh gosh, there was an orphanage at the time, a home for children, not so much an orphanage, but a home for children where parents had relinquished custody of their children due to mental and physical disabilities that their children had hydrocephalus, um, cerebral palsy, things like that. So what he said was 
there was supposedly some sort of TB outbreak that went through this home for children. And most of the children or a good number of the children died from whatever this was, supposedly TB. So he said that it was absolutely, there were absolutely beings in this craft when it crashed. He posits that it was a U.S. government experimental aircraft and they did not want to risk the lives of pilots. So they had taken these children that supposedly died. They did not die. They had taken the children and they had put, in the, put them in the craft to try to study the effects of how quickly that craft flew on the human body. That's why there was a need for caskets, for child-sized caskets. That's why the children looked as if they had, the beings looked as if they had large heads. That's why they were small in stature and their skin was tinged gray. So immediately Ryan and I hear this and we are sickened and freaking out and thinking, does this have merit? What's going on? And you know, if let's just say that's true, just for the sake of argument for this point, if that is true or has any kernel of truth to it, no wonder the government says, you think that it's aliens? Right on. Keep thinking it's aliens. Great. Yeah. Because if that were to be the truth, how horrific. Right. And I mean, we'll get to some of the stuff the government's possibly done in terms of experiments mm -hmm. with people. Uh, but mm -hmm. this was a theory that had been going around the UFO community for a while in different forms, you know, uh, one minute it was, you know, orphans from America, the next minute it was uh, POWs from Japan, the next minute it was people from Russia. Uh, these theories have been going around for a while that Roswell was much more human than I think a lot of people are willing to accept in the believer camp. Uh, mm -hmm. when I heard our cameraman bring, bring up this story, I was stunned because mm -hmm. it was so accurate to things I'd been told throughout the years. It matched up perfectly with the investigation you and I were doing in terms right. of the evidence we found. And it just, it blew me away that a local in Roswell who, you know, has heard every story under the sun said not only that he'd heard this story, but that he'd heard it directly from people within his family that were involved with it. So that was right. scary to think if any of that's true, any of it, it's so any disturbing. Well, and later, you know, I was on set in Los Angeles and somebody said, you've been gone for a long time. I was tech advising for a military scene for the show. And he said, you've been gone a long time. I said, yeah, I was actually just in Roswell. And uh, he said, you know, what, what were you shooting? And I gave him the bare minimum. I said, hey, you're, you know, it's coming out on this day. But yes, basically, we were shooting about that. And he said, you know, I went to New Mexico Military Institute and this is a retired colonel that I know. So, you know, he was in the army for 30 years. He's very reliable. And I said, really? And he said, yes. And he said, and I actually have a connection to Roswell. And I said, well, you know, of course, tell me more. He said that there was a woman who used to be married to one of the town veterinarians. He had since passed on. And when he was a, a cadet at the New Mexico Military Institute, you know, this was 30 years ago, but she was married to the town veterinarian. And she said that her husband had come home and he had said that, and at this time when she was talking to the Colonel, uh, her husband had died, you know, she's retired. They're, they're elderly at this point. 
But back in 1947, he had come home and he was screaming and crying and shaking. And she said, what happened? And he said that, and this was a very reserved man, you know, that's not a standard of behavior for men back then. And he had said that, you know, they had called him in to his practice and they had said, we need you to vivisect because one of these beings was still alive. And he said that there were three beings and he explained that they looked small, um, a tinge gray to their skin. He said that he didn't know if they were human or not, but two of them were dead and they wanted the other one vivisected. And he said he just started freaking out and said no and was crying and screaming. And she said that after that, the you know quintessential men in black came to their house and said that they needed to speak to him. They spoke to him in private and he never talked about it again. So to me, you know, do I know that this is necessarily true? I don't know, but it backs up exactly what the other story was. And, you know, this woman at the time was in her 90s. So why is she going to be making up stories to tell local cadets at the New Mexico Military Institute? That just doesn't make a lot of sense when somebody has lived a very honorable life, doesn't have a history of making up stories, and then in their 90s decides to invent this story. You know, so I, I have to give that some sort of credence. Maybe he told her that and it wasn't true. But then again, why would he make it up? Right. It, it just does. It doesn't make any sense. You know, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, we we could debate till, you know, for the end of time, what Roswell was or wasn't. Mm-hmm. Will we ever know? I don't know. But I know you and I. We we are itching to get back out there because there's some leads that we have where we're like, whoa, <laughs> we really gotta we gotta yeah. look at this even further. So I guess sort of rounding out Roswell, what do you want to do that's left with investigating Roswell? Is there anything that really we weren't able to cover that you'd want to do, or where do you stand right now on the whole thing, Jen? You know, I wish I had access to the files of base personnel at that time. That's something that, you know, if that did exist, it's probably long gone. It's been destroyed. I I would not have access to it. I would love to do, I would love to do more interviews in person with people. Now at this point, it's children of people and it's grandchildren of people, but there's something to be said about many people coming forward who do not have a history of exaggeration or lying and saying, you know, this is what happened this is what my father said. This is what my grandfather said. I really want to do some more interviews because sometimes the beauty of interviews is sometimes people will say something as an aside that they think is nothing, but it connects to something else that you already know about the investigation. And it's just a tree branch and you follow it and you see where it goes. Sometimes it leads to nothing. Sometimes it leads to something really freaking great. That is such a good point. I mean, the only reason you and I are talking about Roswell right now was a chance-like remark to Stanton Friedman, one of the biggest, you know, UFO researchers of all time, who Mm -hmm. we lost recently, unfortunately. But a chance remark that someone said being like, oh, you should talk to that guy, Jesse Marcel. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think he was somewhat involved with that. And then boom, the entire Roswell incident that had been covered up for so long was blown wide open. And that's why we're talking about it now, because it was 
out left in obscurity after it happened. They thought they'd covered this thing up and no one was ever going to talk about it again. But look, it's 2019 and we're still questioning what happened. Well, you know what I would love to do is I would love to go to Kingman because there was a supposedly a UFO crash there. I would love to go to Kecksburg. Mm-hmm. I want to see what the connecting threads are because I don't believe for one instance. Now, I'm not saying that I know for a fact it's extraterrestrial craft. I don't know that. Maybe it's military craft. It could be anything. But you know, when these things happen, this isn't just conspiracy theorists making up things that that's, that's not possible. Oh, in Roswell in 47, they made it up. Oh, in Kecksburg in 65, they made this, that that's a nonsense theory in itself to say all of these things are just created out of somebody's minds. Something happened. We just have to ascertain what. And I can't wait for that possibility for us to get back out there. Mm -hmm. But, um, from Roswell came Mysteries Decoded. The The one-hour special did so well with the CW. They were so amped to keep doing this that they created Mysteries Decoded. And you are the main host. And I, I got to tell you, Jen, like, I love watching this show every week <laughs> just to see the looks on your face when oh you hear gosh. some of these stories. Oh my god, you're becoming a meme. It's hilarious. Oh, I need some gifts. I tell you, I've rolled my eyes so hard, I feel like they're going to break off into the back of my skull. <laughs> See, but here's the thing. That 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 could be taken the wrong way in terms of you're a debunker or an extreme skeptic when I know for a fact that you are very open-minded. I am. I am, but sometimes people... Listen, the the eye rolling comes from, and I'm not going to say what episodes these people are on, but, you know, there were three people that we interviewed who are, they're not hosts. Um, they're, they are not co-hosts. They were just people who were on the show and three individual people who are charlatans, you know, just everything about them. It's like, I, I, they're just trying to sell me something and they're trying to think that I'm dumb and they can kind of try to convince me that A, B, and C is, is true. And there are a lot of people that we bring on the show who are very credible, but then there are other people we bring on who have these fanciful things going on and none of it makes any sense. So yes, I'm extremely open-minded, but you know, I can also sniff out BS like nobody's business. And when somebody's trying to, to feed me something that is clearly just absolutely not true. And I feel, you know, maybe if I, if I believe my lie, she will too. I just cannot control myself. I just yeah. can't. Welcome to my life. I mean, I go to <laughs> these conferences where, uh, you know, you have a retired military base commander, you know, with audio documentation of a UFO event happening, who's risking his career, his pension Mm -hmm. and coming forward with these things. And then the next speaker up, a guy who says he met blue chicken aliens and worked on a Mars base Uh, with Obama. I mean, this this is the sad, sad state of affairs when it comes to these topics, paranormal, UFOs, and the communities that crop up around these is, yes, you have very credible people coming forward and telling stories, but there's always that that shadow, that dark shadow behind them of a charlatan who's going to mm-hmm. take advantage of people's belief systems. So, And it hurts the credibility of everybody involved. Right. And that's who the main, that's who the mass media you know, hooks onto is the blue chicken Obama Mars guy. They don't look at actual sightings and say, okay, this is a UFO. What could it be? Could it be a military craft? Could it be extraterrestrial? Do we know? No, we're just going to lump in all these legitimate sightings in with the blue chicken guy. 
Exactly. Oh, man. I could, we could do an entire episode on the blue chicken guy, but we don't want to give him that much acknowledgement to be, well, to be, to be fair, I've never heard of him. So I'm glad blue chicken guy is not on the, on my radar yet. (laughs) He will be seen. I'll be sure to uh, get you some info (laughs) so you can uh, check him out. But, um, let's get to, uh, the first episode that aired on the CW of Mysteries Decoded. And that's the Lizzie Borden murders. Oh my gosh. I've always been fascinated by this case. Um, I, I went to see a play based on it uh, not too long ago, actually. So it was pretty fresh in my mind when this came out. So, Lizzie Borden, what was the experience like, first of all, working with a paranormal investigator? I I have my reservations about people who are psychic mediums. You know, Stephanie, she's a psychic medium. The paranormal investigators were there. Um, And I just, uh, they're called the ghost guys. The ghost guys? Ghost guys, I think. Yeah, they're pretty cool. I just started following them on social media. Yeah. And pardon me, it has been months and months and months since we shot that. That was the first episode we shot. Um, But I enjoyed working with them. But of course, I went into it thinking she's probably a liar or a fraud or mentally ill. And I, you know, I say that just because 95% of the people who come to me and say they're psychic, it's one of the above. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean mentally ill in a disparaging way. I mean it as a literal, you know, I've dealt with mental illness as well. I mean it as in perhaps she believes these things that are not true. But, you know, the longer we were there, there were things that I could not explain. And I went into that thinking, guys, come on, let's just go in here. Let's just get this done. Let's look at the science. I didn't expect anything to happen. So when we're in the room and they said, can you get down where Abby Borden was found, where Abby Borden's body was found? Sure. I got on the floor. I wasn't scared. I wasn't nervous. I said, I'm going to do this, not feel anything, get up and, you know, go eat my dinner and be fine with it. When I got down there, they were saying, well, there's this creature on the bed. And I felt something or someone touch me in the side. It was not pressure. It was a poke of static electricity in my ribs. Naysayers would say, no, she's wanting to think this. She's thinking something was going to happen. No, I was thinking my boots are cutting off my circulation. How long do I have to stand here? I'm pretty sure my, how long do I have to kneel here? I'm pretty sure my muffin top is hanging out over my pants. What's going on? I was just thinking of all these other things. And um, the CW cut it out, of course, because it was profanity. But I actually stood up after I felt the poke and I said, fuck this. We are done. (laughs) I said, we are done. And I was very thrown by that. I did not expect that. And then later, you know, I I had never felt that malevolent creature that they said is next to you and it looks like it's trying to hit you. I never felt any evil, anything like that. I did feel the child that was around and it was this weird euphoric feeling with a hint of affection kind of, you know, how it is when my kids are around. It was like this hint of affection and protectiveness. And it was the oddest thing I've ever felt because here I am at a murder scene. I should have felt either bored if I'm a skeptic or nervous if I'm not. I felt the euphoria and I felt that several times. And Stephanie said to me later, Uh, during a few of those times, she said, the child is back. I didn't say anything to her. I didn't say, this is how I feel. She looked at me and said, do you feel her? She's next to you. Mm -hmm. So I still can't say what Stephanie is and what she isn't, but I can tell you that there were several times I felt something. I didn't say anything. I didn't look a certain way. I was minding my own business. And she said to me, the child is back. So Maybe it's possible she sees things that we do not. I don't know 
And I'm not ready to discount that because we don't understand how souls work or different dimensions or, you know, we don't understand that. So even as a skeptic, who am I to say, oh, that doesn't exist? Right. And, you know, I'm I'm sort of glad that the episode really teetered on both ends of the spectrum. You know, you've got the sort of paranormal angle of trying to possibly communicate with spirits um, in terms of trying to solve this case, uh, which is, you know, (laughs) an interesting way to go, obviously. But then you had the other side of it, too, where you you spoke to an author of the book that about Lizzie Borden or um, who was the other gentleman? He was like a crime scene investigator or he was a detective, right? Yes, yes. So um, he, yeah, so he was a detective and he had worked as a crime scene investigator for years. And it's funny because of course, you know, as we shoot, it's, you know, two or three hours and then it becomes a two to three minute scene, but he was really interesting. And he gave me, um, a perspective as to, cause people said, well, Lizzie couldn't have done it because many sources said she was left-handed and he showed, in fact, if she was left-handed, As sources have indicated, she absolutely could have done it. She could have come up behind Andrew Borden on the couch and did it that way. And that would have explained the spatter. It also would have made sense because if you're about to murder your own father, you know, do you want to be looking right at him as you plunge that hatchet into his face? Or is it kind of more palatable to stand behind and do a sneak attack? So he was really, really interesting. And and I wish... I wish that uh, that scene could have been longer because he provided so much science behind it as far as blood spatter, um, trajectory. Oh, it was fascinating talking to him. I'm sure. And I mean, sort of going out of this episode, uh, I I mean, I don't know about you. I lean more on the side that she definitely did this. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were some pieces of evidence that you guys found that I'd never heard before that really convinced, at least for me, uh, all paranormal stuff aside, that uh, that Lizzie was not the person that a lot of people think she was. And there were reasons for that. Well, I I absolutely believe that she did it. And if she was a man, there would be no discussion about it. But there were so many things that just didn't make sense. And there's, you know, and Stephanie said, the woman I talked to, she could not have done this. Listen, plenty of people do bad things and have remorse. If I believe that she was talking to Lizzie Borden, um, that's quite possible that she has remorse. It's quite possible she was a changed person. It's quite possible she lived the rest of her life upset and sickened by what she had done. But at the same time, you know, there was a quote that was cut out. I said, Lizzie Borden is the first documented case of affluenza because she murdered her parents and then bought this huge estate with the blood money and lived in that for the rest of her life. That was, that was a, a a level of, you know, that was what she, that, that was how she wanted to live. And then as soon as her parents were dead, you know, she, she moves into this sprawling estate. She got exactly what she wanted. So there were so many things that were inappropriate. Another thing that was cut out was the all male jury. There was a photo of them that we showed in the program. They sent Lizzie Borden this photo of them, like some sort of weird fan club. I thought, what is going on here? Mm. You know, it it was everything about it was just um, off the walls. And Rebecca Pittman, the author we interviewed, her book is almost 900 pages. And I had gone through the court documents and I had looked at all of the things she had provided. And she spent years of her life putting this together. And it was very persuasive. She was dealing with primary source documents. She's not going off of hearsay. 
Right. And the fact that she has those documents from so long ago, I mean, that's that's digging beyond, like, some surface-level look at this case. That's, like, it, it gets to the point of almost an obsession. But again, that's when authors really, they have a lot of power, and they can change, they can ultimately change history at times. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, no, Re- Rebecca was amazing. She, um, definitely, I mean, she put a lot of time and effort into that, but she was spot on anything that I asked her that I wasn't clear about from looking at, at court records or, you know, reading witness accounts. She knew the answer right away. There was nothing that she had to say, let me look that up. And if she didn't know, she would say, well, that's not really well known. I've looked into it here, 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 here. And then I had also read the book from the Fall River uh, Historical Association. And that was a, a very, very thick book. It was hard to find. I had to interlibrary loan it from university, um, in Austin at a university in Austin and they sent it to me and, you know, they're very much of, of the belief that, uh, she did not commit mm. this crime. I, I just don't see how it's possible that anybody else could have, it doesn't make any sense. And if she had a penis, she would have been convicted. <laughs> case closed. Yeah. It doesn't require a penis, you know, to be a murderer. It does not require a penis. It just does not. Thank you. I'm so <laughs> glad you said it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, moving from uh, penises to uh, the Mothman. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Mothman. <sighs> you met a firsthand witness of Mothman, which was really cool. You also worked with one of my good colleagues, MJ Benias, on this episode. And uh, I got to ask, what was this experience like? What did you make of Mothman before this? And uh, what was your what were your first impressions when you got there to uh, to uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia? Well, I'll say that I had not heard of Mothman outside of just being familiar with the Mothman prophecies. It was not something that was well known to me. When we went to West Virginia, you know, I'm a country girl at heart. I grew up in a very rural area. I still go to the rodeo. People say there's a rodeo in California. I do. I go to the rodeo. You know, that that is kind of the place I like to be. So when we went to West Virginia, it was just wonderful. The people were amazing. And um, it was really, really nice. They were incredibly welcoming. When I first started looking into it, I, I thought, you know, this had to be some moonshine and, you know, cowboys who were just out out seeing something, right? Just out in the middle of the woods. But the more that I looked into it, I thought, this cannot be where all of these people come forward and they're seeing the same thing. What I believe happened with Mothman was there had to have been something in the beginning because there are too many witness accounts that match. The police would call people in. They'd immediately separate them, have them write it down on paper, and the accounts would match. There were so many legitimate sightings. And then then I think after that, it kind of became Mothman was the default. People mm. would see something. They thought it was Mothman. And I get it. It's a kind of mass hysteria that follows that. But there was something in the beginning. Now, what that is, I don't know. There was something that MJ and I discussed that was, you know, also didn't survive the edit. There is a concept in many indigenous cultures of thought forms. So basically a thought form, and this is a very lay person's definition. I'm not an expert in the subject, but from what I've read of it, if enough people believe in something's existence, 
think of the mind power that comes from that. We don't understand the power of the brain. We don't understand exactly how it works. So if you have dozens of people, hundreds of people, thousands of people believing that something exists, a thought form is basically where it is willed into being. Mm -hmm. Now, this could be a sight or a sound or a presence. It doesn't necessarily mean that all these people believe Mothman exists and then a creature is created that lives and breathes and walks. It's not that. It's just kind of uh, this, this thought form, this being that's there. So do I think that that possibly could have happened uh, later on? I do, because we don't know enough about the brain to say that's not a possibility. MJ was so well-read. He was so well-spoken. He's so intelligent. I loved shooting with him. Yeah, yeah. What's always fascinated me about MJ is this cultural approach he takes to the paranormal. You Mm -hmm. know, it's not just like, oh, I believe in Bigfoot or I believe in the Mothman. It's, okay, well, let's look throughout the decades of how these stories uh, either manifested or changed or how culture or belief systems impact, you know, what we're seeing or think we're seeing. You know, right. a lot of people connect the Mothman now to this silver bridge collapse when in reality, when you really look at the string of events, uh, there were there was not that many sightings of the Mothman at the silver bridge. It right. just happens to be, you know, what, like you said, a default, like this horrible mm-hmm. tragedy happens in a small town. Let's go to the closest thing, this harbinger of doom, as it were, the Mothman. But And people want to assign, to be fair, people want to assign meaning to tragedy. You know, you saw this after, you know, not not to get political, I won't, but you saw this after after 9-11. I'll keep it on a historical note. You know, people, they were thirsty for vengeance and it, it made people feel good to say, hey, we are going to go after these people that caused 9-11. It gave them a purpose. Now, I'm not saying that was right or wrong. What I'm just saying is that is a natural reaction to tragedy. You want to lash out at somebody, you want to get even, you want to assign blame. And, and and that's absolutely understandable. And I think when you're dealing with a tragedy like that, you know, they don't necessarily at the time know that the bridge was made for this amount of traffic. And this is the weight that's now on the bridge, it hadn't been regularly inspected. That's not something back in in those times where they can go online and say, hmm, when was this bridge last inspected? So of course, rather than lashing out, you know, where the blame should have been, it was, it said, okay, well, maybe it was this, this is what I saw. I saw this too. And, and it became Mothman. It became that, that he was the one, not necessarily to blame, but he was the one that was there warning them of this impending doom giving a face to like the things that we can't explain or the things we fear uh it's how we deal with it i think that's such a good point and i mean right yeah and you guys also came out with some really interesting evidence for this episode i won't give it away too much because all these episodes are free to stream right now i highly suggest people check them out over at cwc but um this idea of this photo you guys had in the episode um i think that 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 photo has been going around for years now, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. a lot of people say this is evidence the Mothman exists, and I think you guys hit the nail on the head with the photo, the analysis that was done on it, and what it actually was. I won't give it away, but I right. think it was 100% the answer to that photograph, in my personal I, opinion. 
I was, I mean, so we won't say, it's we, won't hard, say what, <laughs> we won't say what the photo was, but I will just say that, you know, this photo that was supposedly taken by a hunter who wants to re- remain anonymous, Jen's work was so thorough that in my private practice, I want to use her for any, for any audio or visual, audio or video forensics that I need, because I was so impressed with her. She gave me information. I did not go into that thinking that it was going to work out the way that it did. I went into there thinking, no, 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 I'm, I am pretty sure that, you know, the photo is A, B or C. And she shocked the hell out of me. I mean, the face that I show, that's not an acting face. That is a what the hell? I did not think that she was going to say that to me. Yeah. And I, I sort of went in being like, oh, yeah, she's going to prove it was hoaxed or like whatever yeah. this thing in the images was like brushed into there, CGI'd, whatever. But yep. uh, her answer to it, I was like, yep, boom, done. So I highly suggest people go to the episode to see what we're talking about. Um, Definitely. What do, you, what do you think of this idea, um, wrapping up Mothman? This is the same thing you and I came across with Roswell as well, is this idea that a town uh, that may not have been known for much, now part of the cultural zeitgeist of the paranormal or ufological, they become prosperous because of this event in their town. Uh, What do you make of that? To be fair, there was probably one or two people that misconstrued what I said on the show about basically profiting from disaster. So so I'll try to be more clear here. You cannot um, say that the town of Point Pleasant has not profited from the lore of Mothman. It absolutely has. People go there because Mothman is, you know, it's very prevalent. They have a museum there. It's very much a tourist draw. Now, with that being said, they did not profit off of the collapse of the Silver Bridge. That was the worst bridge disaster in U.S. history. No one is profiting off the tragedy. Mothman became inextricably linked to the Silver Bridge collapse. But the fact that Mothman is alive and well in their town as far as lore, I don't put that with the Silver Bridge collapse. So I think that it's one of those things that's a sleepy town. It's kind of something fun when you remove it from the tragedy and you only look at it in a paranormal lens. It's kind of fun. It's kind of kitschy. And, you know, I think they've done a good job at kind of marketing the town in this way. And they, they have a festival every year, but I will be clear that community is affected by the silver bridge collapse. It is something very traumatic and very tragic for them. And I didn't meet anybody who wasn't affected by it by one way or another. They all have relatives who either died or knew someone who died. It's a very small, closely knit town. So while I think that Mothman is very kitschy and very cute and it's a tourist draw there, and I loved the people of Point Pleasant. I don't see it as at all as them profiting from any, you know, from the death and destruction that happened with the Silver Bridge collapse. You have to, you know, parse those. You have to take them as two separate, two separate issues, if that makes sense. Yes, they're linked, but you have to take it as two separate issues. Nobody there thinks it's okay to profit off the death of of all those people who perished. Exactly. I I think you guys sort of summed it up best when you said, like, end of the day, no matter what you think about Mothman, the Silver Bridge Collapse is a tragedy, and it Mm -hmm. should be treated as such. And, you know, that that is the case with a lot of sort of mystery, mysteries that occur, you know, whether it's the Bermuda Triangle, where people 
disappear forever. Like, yeah, it's alluring and, and, and intriguing to think, oh, some paranormal or weird thing happened. End of the day, someone died, you know, mm-hmm. or someone's missing. So we got to keep those things into perspective. And I think you guys did such a good job at focusing on the human impact that the this event had um and completely separating it from mothman and well thank you i i do want to share something that got cut yes please (laughs) mj and i were so annoyed that we didn't find anything in the forest we were in the woods just running around and you know we're trying to find something and and we're you know we're open to this and there was nothing even scary it was just beautiful and we just loved being out there. It was gorgeous. And we left there and we were driving back so grumpy. We saw nothing. We saw nothing because this was right after we shot, had shot Lizzie Borden and I had shot Lizzie Borden. So I went into this thinking we're going to see nothing and we, we're going to see something. And when we saw nothing, it was such a letdown. But the investigator in me should have known you're not going to see anything. Just go out for a midnight stroll in the woods and be OK with that. Yeah, it, that's tough. I mean, welcome to paranormal investigation. Right? People don't know, like, <laughs> even these ghost hunting shows, you know, some of them are probably a little staged or whatnot, but they are there for like, you know, hours on end with nothing happening. And yes. then the minute something happens, that's why you see every ghost hunting show be like what was that and they cut to commercial right. <laughs> come back right? someone now, knocked over the tripod right right now the stage thing um the pilot podcast who did who reviewed the pilot or lizzie borden episode of um of mysteries decoded it was funny because speaking of staging they said you know jennifer's having breakfast with stephanie the next morning and her hair is good and she's been through hair and makeup i just want to say i had not been through hair and makeup i had not (laughs) i just use a very good setting lotion and i can sleep and my curls will be there in the morning they'll be loose but they'll be there and you know when we were eating breakfast my breakfast was disappearing pretty quickly. So I'll say this, if you're watching the show and you see a continuity error like that, it's because, and it happened in Roswell too, we are shooting, we're not worried about refilling food so it looks good on camera. We are worried about getting an in-depth conversation. This is not acting. You know, when you and I were at the diner in Roswell, we were talking and eating and yes, you know, the way they edit it, sometimes it'll go from half a burrito to no burrito, (laughs) but that's, but that's because they're taking three minutes of an hour long conversation. So yes, those continuity errors do exist. Um, try not to look into them so much because we're trying to be realistic. And honestly, as an investigator, if I'm worried about, what level of food is on my plate, you're not going to get the best questions coming out of my mouth. (laughs) And again, that's why it's scripted reality, people. Like, they're Mm -hmm. in even more with Mysteries Decoded than most of these shows uh, is the reality aspect of it. Like, there's so little acting or script when it comes Mm -hmm. to the show, and I respect morning star and cw for allowing that that you know that openness to both you your co-investigators uh and the people you interview is there's not a lot of structure we're literally going in to investigate and they they let you do what you do best and that's to investigate so i i completely understand that and i remember after the roswell special uh people's primary question for me not what do you think happened at roswell what do you think of the medals you guys found the question was did you eat that entire burrito because that thing was huge (laughs) 
did you have a burrito too? Yeah, I had the, I think it was the alien burrito or they, something they called it. They were so good. Oh and I remember. God, the food was amazing. It was so good. And, and there is an Easter egg. The executive producer is sitting at a table behind us so yep. if you guys watch it the executive producer's there and it's funny because i remember they were like okay we're getting we're you know we're leaving to go shoot in the next place and i said okay i'm gonna finish this burrito and they're like we're on a schedule i'm like okay yep i'm gonna finish <laughs> this burrito because this burrito was good and we sat there and ate i mean the burrito was insane if you guys are ever in roswell go that was the best diner the best coffee the best service i loved it it was amazing the cowboy cafe i think it was called. yes yeah, See, yeah i yeah. just did i just did like a mini you know, for free, I just gave them a mini advertisement. Cowboy Cafe, Roswell, <laughs> Roswell, New Mexico. Come on in. Great burritos, great coffee, great service. Yep. They make their own, uh, I think, Tabasco sauce, too, or something. Mm-hmm. Definitely mm-hmm. check it out. They've been seen all over our planet, somewhere in the skies. I'm talking about flying saucers. Hey guys, Ryan Sprague here, and I'm excited to tell you about Saucer, your source for original and authentic ufology-inspired essentials and apparel. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Symbolizing self-enrichment. Elevate your craft at thesaucerbrand.com. Use promo code SKIES for 20% off your entire purchase. I've got their bomber jacket, their t-shirts, and their crew neck sweater. And I am rocking them like crazy here in New York City. People are starting to ask me about it, and they're even starting to look up into the skies. Saucer products are sustainably made in the USA with only the most comfortable fabrics known to man. 
Receive 20% off your entire purchase now when you use the code SKIES at thesaucerbrand.com. Show everyone that you believe and get your saucer gear now. That's thesaucerbrand.com. Keep looking somewhere in the skies and remember to elevate your craft. All right, so moving to the uh, the big one, Jen. You have a very close connection to this, the Montauk experience yes. uh, in a the other world that you live in. So um, uh, let's cover this one, the Montauk project. Tell us a little about your connection to Montauk before you even went there to investigate. You know, Stranger Things was supposedly inspired by what happened at Montauk. So when I went to Montauk to investigate this, it was like my two lives, one on TV and one in investigation, they were colliding. It was the most surreal thing ever, but it was so intriguing to actually be on the ground where all of these horrible things supposedly took place. And we'll get to some of those horrible things because I, I, I heard things in the episode that I hadn't known previously about Montauk, and I've been looking at that case for a while. But what stuck out to me first and foremost with this episode, Jen, was your co-host. Oh my god. <laughs> I I felt like I was watching like if if the people that made Parks and Rec or The Office wrote for the X-Files, they could not have cast right. your co-host any better. Holy shit, this guy was hilarious. So, tell us he, a little Sam about Sam is him. off the wall. Oh my gosh, Ryan. He he's off the wall, but, um, that's just his default. I remember, I remember waking up one day and they're doing a coffee run and I'm coming out of hair and makeup and he's already bouncing off the wall. And he said, yeah, I I really need some coffee. And I'm like, Ooh, this is you uncaffeinated. Holy cow. (laughs) That's just his, his default. And there were so many times I literally grab his knee because he's, you know, his default is kind of a yell. And I was like, Sam, we can't yell. We're in the middle of a restaurant or in the middle of whatever. Um, but with that being said, it was so fun shooting with him just because you never know what's going to come out of his mouth. And they have so many bloopers. I mean, some of the things that he says, he is just, he's, he's just Sam. And, um, he's a conspiracy guy. I mean, that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with Sam, I will say this, that is not an act. That is his default. That is who he is. I shot with him, you know, from 7am to 10pm some nights and, did he get a little quiet, like, you know, after lunch, carb coma? Sure. But for the most part, that is Sam, just wired all the time. I, I think what really stuck out to me with this episode is the passion that you saw in what he was looking for within the Montauk Project. And and you, too, because you had a very interesting story to tell in the episode, uh, which you mentioned earlier, of Kind of, kind of, we, we think of the military as like this sort of very structured thing where things go point by point, no mistakes are ever made, it's very rigid, but then you come to things like the Montauk Project, or MK Ultra or Project mm-hmm. Orange, uh, all these things where the, the military has been, has used people for things to, um, in their personal opinions and officialdom, to get something. And right. we, we don't know what the hell they were trying to get out of the Montauk project. But what what do you make of all the claims of the stuff that actually went on there? You know, it's interesting because the Montauk project is this huge umbrella that has a lot of 
crazy claims. So, you know, child abduction, time travel, you know, experimenting on children. There's, there's a lot that kind of goes into it. So when people say, oh, I believe in the Montauk Project, I always say, well, what do you believe? Because there's so many individual claims, you have to judge each claim on its own merit. So for me, I'm not naive enough to think, oh, the government never does A, B, and C, because from my own experience, clearly I know that's not true. Time travel, I think, is pretty much, you know, unproven. I, I think if time travel did exist, there would be time travelers among us now. And I would hope that we would be doing better than we are now as a society. If, if you have time travelers and you have hindsight, you could kind of, you know, try to clean up all the things that are going on right now. So that's my main beef with the time travel aspect. Also is the Philadelphia experiment with the USS Eldridge is, is looped into, into Montauk. And we didn't talk about that a lot in the episode. But the one thing that strikes me about the Philadelphia experiment is supposedly the USS Eldridge went through a space warp and it ended up, it ended up, um, (laughs) this is so crazy. In a nutshell, these guys knew that the ship was going through a space warp. So they jumped off the side, these two guys, Mm -hmm. and supposedly they landed up, they landed on the cliffs of Montauk in 1983. And this was in the, this was in the forties. And so I'm trying you know, I'm talking to people. I'm, I said, well, how could this be? And then supposedly the ship, as it was going through the space warp, there were sailors who got stuck like pimento cheese style in the walls. Mm-hmm. And then I said, okay, well, if this is true, who were the sailors that died? The ship was later sent to Greece. So wouldn't have Greece said, hey, uh, first was sent to Greece and it became the Lyon in Greece. And then it was scrapped for metal. So wouldn't they have said, why are there body parts in 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 the, yeah. in the walls of this ship. So it was a lot of unfounded, just kind of crazy claims. But I do think that personally, what I believe happened was there were people who were working under the guise of the government and whether or not they were ordered by the government or they were just bad people, they were doing things to children. There were things that um, that were brought up as far as pedophilia. And you, you have to stay away from that because it gets into lawsuits. And that's why I say allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. But I think what we know about the Catholic Church and, you know, things have happened in the Boy Scouts and things have happened with pedophilia throughout society that people said, no, that's not a thing that never happened. And then it ended up happening. So I don't think that that's something that we can say was definitely not something that happened. When Joe went under hypnosis, the hypnotist said, um, she said, no, this doesn't seem like it's sexual abuse related. And Joe says that he does not recall any of that happening. But clearly something happened to Joe. That was not him faking. That was not, no, do I know that that was the case? No, but I know that something happened. So um, there's a lot going on there that comes down to bad men in positions of authority or power and children and, and vulnerable people being being lured in. I'm glad you said that. I mean, I deal with so many unsubstantiated claims in the alien abduction realm of things as well. And uh, when a lot of these people go under hypnotic regression, it's the same thing, the first question everyone asks me is, oh, well, or not even question, claim they say, preconceived notion is, oh, they were sexually abused as a child. You know, this Mm -hmm. is a way to deal with it. And I I can't argue that and say some of them are or aren't. But at the end of the day, something happened to these people. You know, it's not 
a complete fantasy. Something clearly traumatic happened to them in their lives, uh, whether or not it was the an evil black government doing experiments or aliens conducting abduction experiences on people. I, I can't tell you, but something happened to these people. Right. And I, I think people who say, you know, I, I, I don't believe that somebody's faking. I would say, well, listen, that's fine to maybe doubt the veracity of their claim. But to say that somebody is going to bring all this unwanted attention and critique to themselves by saying something that happened that didn't, I, I don't believe that. I believe that people are influenced by trauma. Something happened. Maybe they don't necessarily know. But I never doubt the pain someone is going through. I definitely look at the claim and say, okay, just because you're saying that this happened, that doesn't necessarily mean that I believe. But that it, it, it costs me nothing to extend compassion to you when you're hurting. That costs me nothing. And I, I think with Joe, do I know that he was a Montauk boy? I, I, don't, I don't know that. But I know that the session on TV was three minutes. The session in real life was over an hour. And I saw him crying and shaking, and it was hard for her to pull him out. I, I, I don't know what happened to him, but something happened, and he deserves respect and compassion for whatever he may be dealing with. Yeah, that was that was hard to watch. It, it really was. And I can't imagine like having to endure that entire regression uh both for you guys watching and for him too you know reliving whatever this fractured memory is of his or uh you know struggle with if it was a dream or not we mm -hmm. we may mm -hmm. never know and joe might not ever know and that's kind of probably what the montauk project wanted all along and i think a lot of this comes back to preston nichols and preston nichols supposedly had hypnotized joe you know, 20, 30 years earlier, and he had relived some traumatic experiences. Then I don't like anything about Preston Nichols. I've watched videos. I wish he was still alive so I could interview him in person, but I've watched videos with him. I've read things that he's written and there is something about him. I don't like him mm -hmm. and that's as far as I'll go, but it's kind of all roads lead back to this Preston Nichols character. And um, I try not to speak ill of the dead. He's not here to defend himself. But if you look into Preston Nichols and you look into the Montauk Project, there's a lot of things that are very shady. They don't make sense. And I'm not okay with a lot of the things that he said and did. And what's even more terrifying is to think that this may have actually had nothing to do with the government. That right. this was just rogue scientists or people claiming to be doing projects for the government right. doing these horrible things to kids. I, I don't even want to go there. It, it's right. just, it's almost unfathomable to think that people were doing these things, but you know, all we sort of have left is this dilapidated radar tower and all these dark, disturbing stories. You know, there was one thing that was cut out. There was supposedly an LSD house at Camp Hero. Right. Yeah. And, it was marked officer housing. So as not as in single officers where they would go to stay, but as in a house for an O five or an O six, a, a, like a, a Lieutenant Colonel or a Colonel and his family. So this house, when, when I had seen photos of it, Brian Minnick showed photos, there was a open, bay for showers and there was open toilets 
Now, if it really is a base commander's housing, you're it's set up as an actual house because a family lives there. Yeah. So what I believe is they marked it as being a house for the colonel on the base or a general on the base because that keeps 99% of base personnel out of there. They don't they're, they're not authorized to go there. They don't want to go there, so they stay away. So when we were looking through this, um, you know, that's something that has not been brought up. It's like, how do you hide an LSD house? Well, you hide it in plain sight and you label it to where most soldiers or airmen are not going to be poking around. Good point. Yeah. I'm so happy you guys got a hold of Brian Minnick because his videos have been like the biggest bombshell for to break this thing open, to at least know that there's stuff going on. Uh, oh, had gone on there and the fact that there's underground tunnels like that thing you guys found in the episode in terms of a quote-unquote access point like mm-hmm. whoa that kind of blew my mind well what's interesting to me is a lot of those areas have either been filled in with rocks or with seawater so you know they could say it's for safety purposes but i do have to wonder why Right. Why? Because there's plenty of buildings, there's plenty of underground bunkers, there's plenty of things that, you know, they simply demolish, they build over, they, but with this, they filled it up with rocks, they filled it up with seawater, and some people have even said that they torched the inside of it prior to doing that. Uh, and the conspiracies continue, mm-hmm. <laughs> as they often do. All right, Jen, the motherload of conspiracies, hashtag Storm Area 51. <laughs> This came out of nowhere, just in time for you and I to cover this. Um, We had no idea this was going to happen when we actually did our investigation. So talk about, like, all in the timing. Well, we had absolutely no idea that the movement was going to take place. We didn't know any of this. So we were just interested at what was going on at Area 51. Clearly, there's been a lot of conjecture. This Bob Lazar character you know, people are split on him. They either absolutely believe him or they think he's a charlatan and a liar. So Bob Lazar was somebody that I absolutely wanted to discount uh, when I had first heard about him. But there are several things that there's no explanation. There's no explanation for with regards to Bob and some of the things that he's claiming. So it's a really interesting episode and I'm really excited for it to air. Me too. And uh, by the time this episode is released, it'll be within days of that. So I'm super excited for people to see what we uncovered. Um, But what I think is even more interesting than just Area 51, because yes, we did go to Area 51. I won't say anything more than that. But our investigation was kind of sparked by by something else, and that was these recent videos that were released through the uh, the secret Pentagon UFO program, A-Tip. So mm-hmm. what did you think of these videos when you first saw them? I know you talk about it in the episode quite a bit as well, but um, yeah, as a former military uh, veteran, these videos coming forward from the Navy, nonetheless, your people are the ones that have like broken the whole new ufo conversation going on in today's world you know when i saw the videos i i don't know i I really didn't know what to think i saw them i thought it was a little funny i thought you know maybe this is who knows what it is because the first time that i ever see anything i just assume it's a fake just because most of the things i deal with 
you know, are frauds or fakes. And then I really look into, okay, where did this come from? All right, that's not a fake. That's not something somebody made up on a computer. They're really inexplicable. And, and I wish I could say, oh, you know, this is absolutely possible the way this is flying. It's not. And honestly, I'm surprised that it hasn't gotten more mainstream. I'm surprised more people don't know about it. I talked to people about it and they said, no, no, I've, I've never heard of that. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of the videos. I've never heard of the, you know, I don't know. But we're in a society where people care about the Kardashians and, and they're not really aware of things that are going on. And And I'm not saying, you know, you can't have a little bit of fun and care about the Kardashians once in a while, but if this is extraterrestrial in nature, that has some serious potential consequences for humanity as a whole. Right. And some of the people we talked to in the episode, again, not giving away too much, but we're talking about people who had firsthand experience with what these videos might or might not be. Uh, intelligence people we spoke to. Uh, mm-hmm. And they all sort of agree that, yeah, something's going on and we got to be careful because... Whatever these things are, whatever technology they represent, it's far beyond what our own military is capable of or or even knows of or is privy to. Absolutely. And I know that there's going to be people who watch the episode and say, oh, those people are just fame and fortune seeking. What a bunch of garbage. I'll tell you this. There were two people involved with the 2004 incident off the USS Nimitz battle group who have talked to me confidentially. Off the record, I cannot and will not use their names. They were not included in the show. These people backed up and gave me additional information as to what we show in the program. So if the people on the program are doing it for fame and fortune, what are these other two people doing it for? They have nothing to gain. They have everything to lose. They came to me as a fellow Navy veteran in confidence and said, yes, this is what happened. And explain to me their experiences. So I don't buy for one minute when people say, well, all these former sailors or aviators, they're just looking for fame and fortune. Because generally people who go into the military, that's we're not (laughs) the military does not pay a lot and it's not a path to stardom. So that's not, you know, something that people generally join for. Wow, that's I didn't even know that. That's crazy to me. Mm-hmm. It only solidifies for me that all these Navy people coming forward, uh, this is going to change things. We already know that the Navy has a new reporting system for UFOs. And that's that's incredible to think that in 2019, the stigma of reporting UFOs is changing. We know mm-hmm. in the military and even in just commercial aviation that when you reported these things boom career over you know right. you were put on desk duty instead of flying the skies for the rest of your career but now they can do it and now we're starting to see wow you know not just 2004 2000 whatever 16 these things have been going on for a while and now these people can talk about it so it's fascinating well, I've, always, I've always wondered why that was something that was really looked down upon because to me it's narcissistic to believe we are the most intelligent form of life out there. First of all, there's a septillion planets. We're the only one with any form of life. And who are we to say, Oh, we are definitely the most advanced. Mm -hmm. We could be ants compared to another civilization. We could be nothing more than sloths. So to say, you know, um, somebody saw something that they don't understand what it is 
Maybe it could be top secret military, but maybe it could be extraterrestrial. Oh, that person needs to be mocked. That person should be grounded. That person should lose their career. It's all based in narcissism. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that because we've we've struggled with that for so long of not only saying, look, the the possibilities of alien life is just like, there has to be. There has to be. I think almost every mathematician, astronomer out there agrees that there's some sort of alien life form out there. Uh, whether it's visited this planet or not, or is intelligent or sentient, that's a whole different story. But right. uh, it's fascinating that we now live in an age where you can talk about UFOs without getting laughed at. You know, it's it's still there, and it's probably always going to be there, that small hint of ridicule. But I, I see the tides changing within uh, the overall UFO conversation, and I think it shows like yours and uh, the this show that Tom DeLonge did, you know, the Blink-182 guy um, about UFOs that's really showing people, look, we could talk about this normally at the dinner table and you don't have to like be afraid to do it so kudos to any navy pilot who's come out with these nimitz encounters or these uh the gimbal video the tic tac what have it like we need more people like that to be willing to do that absolutely and i think you know when i hear of sightings or i hear of witness accounts regardless of what it is i always ask myself what does this person have to gain these naval aviators have nothing to gain and a lot to lose. Absolutely. So I think even the, you know, the high, the most skeptic of all skeptics needs to look at this and say, all right, let me just at least hear these people out because there's nothing driving this. Oh, let me come out, possibly lose my career, be ridiculed. No, th- this is, they're coming out because they saw something. And they feel like other people should be aware of it. And and for a few of the people I talked to, they said, yes, I, I'm, I have fear as to what I saw because I know that this is not within the capability of the military. And if this is extraterrestrial in nature, how do we know that these beings are <laughs> – that they're, you know, safe, that they that they don't want to do us harm. I mean, you don't know their motivation if it is, in fact, something extraterrestrial. Exactly. You know, the question no longer is, like, if UFOs exist, it's who's in control of them? Mm-hmm. Why are they here? And like you said, everyone always says, oh, if aliens exist, they're so far advanced and enlightened and intelligent that they would be peaceful. We don't know that. We don't. Why just because they're so vastly intelligent does, you know, time and evolution say that they're going to be a peaceful race? I've never understood that. We are pretty technologically advanced and we are warmongers. Exactly. To the point where we could destroy our own planets. Absolutely. Who knows? Who knows who's in control of these UFOs, why they're doing this? And, uh, oh, God, it's so fascinating. But a lot of people, Jen, think that it's aliens. And they're going to see them aliens on September 20th when they storm the gates of Area Oh, no, 51. if they storm the gates, they're going to be seeing some uh, tear gas and fun stuff like that. I mean, I do think that, you know, the guy that we talked about who stormed the gates and he had a cylindrical object in his hand, he was killed, unfortunately. Um, yeah. You play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. I feel bad for his family. Um, I, I don't know what his motivation was, but it's it's tragic. You cannot do that. You cannot storm a base. I would hope and I would think that 
the military is planning appropriately for this. And, and I don't think that they're going to be there, you know, and machine guns are going to be <laughs> yeah. their, their, their first go-to. I don't think, uh, you know, they're, they're just going to blow people away, but, but I do think that they're going to be prepared with tear gas, rubber bullets, things that make crowds very angry and very uncomfortable. Um, and of course, yes, they'll have, they'll have lethal, less lethal methods, but you also have to have lethal methods. So yeah. I would encourage anyone who's saying, let me storm. You do not storm a military base, even in large numbers. You do not do that. You can't outrun bullets. Don't do that. Absolutely. And again, like, I think you and I can both agree, no matter what we personally think is going on at Area 51, that that base exists for our security. Whatever's being developed there is for our safety when it comes down to it. And I've never been like a pro, you know military person but (laughs) you can bet your ass i'm thankful that we have those people doing that for us so absolutely people please don't storm the gates of area 51 if you're going to go out there go to the alien research center go to the little alien um go have a good time you know maybe have a couple beers listen to some music i think that's what they're planning to do but do not storm the gates because you and i both know they knew you and i were coming god how how many miles before we even got to that gate i I can't even imagine so i won't say anymore And and I think it's important if people want to go, they have the camaraderie of other believers, they can have a good time, um, but keep it a good time, people. Nope. <laughs> keep it good. Keep it good. Yeah. Right. Well, in terms of what's to come on Mysteries Decoded, Jen, uh, could you give us a little tease of what's going to be happening after uh, Area 51? Yeah, we have some great episodes to wrap up the season. We actually look at Bigfoot, which I went into it thinking complete nonsense. Um, But we've talked to a scientist in the field who, you know, he brought up some really great points, showed me some really intriguing things. Uh, We look at vampires in New Orleans and whether the consumption of blood can, in fact, lengthen one's life. Uh, And we look at the Bermuda Triangle which was really, really interesting to me because, of course, numerous planes and ships, uh, military planes and ships, have gone missing in that area. And so that's an episode where we hit the science pretty hard. I'm really looking forward to that one. I've done a little bit in the past on the Bermuda Triangle, so I can't wait to see what you guys came up with that one. But um, I we have Salem Witches, too. Oh, my gosh, yeah, Salem Witches. Which we shot that second. It's been so long I had forgot about it. Um, Yes, we had Salem Witches as well, which was really intriguing because, of course, so many people were put to death for supposedly practicing witchcraft. So we we delve into it and, you know, look at were they witches? Were they practicing witchcraft? What made the town put all these people to death? What happened? What were the socioeconomic variables included in that scenario? It's a very interesting episode. Oh, and the gender politics of the time, that was something that I really had not thought of going into it. But there was such a difference between men and women. Um, Children were to be seen and not heard. So, you know, gender dynamics, power, there were so many things that 
that went into that episode. It, it should be a good one. That's fascinating. I, I got to ask you, Jen, with Mysteries Decoded, like this is a huge departure from kind of what you're used to or what I'm sure your family or friends or colleagues know about you. So how have your your friends, your colleagues in the entertainment industry and the military, how have they reacted to Mysteries Decoded? The veteran community has been extremely, extremely supportive. We tend to support our brothers and sisters when, you know, they branch off into different endeavors. So I've been very indebted to them. I would say the private investigation community at first, uh, when it was first pitched to them, you know, their concern was don't make us look like a bunch of um, schleps, which I get. I I do not think that I've done that. But of course, anytime it's reality TV or docudrama, there's always the, you know, there's always the fear that the profession is going to be belittled. So I think we've avoided doing that. Uh, Many of my other investigators said that they will never work on anything paranormal, which I absolutely appreciate and understand where they're coming from. The reception's been really good. You always have, you know, your one to 5% trolls. But for the most part, um, just people overall have been super supportive. And the the way that I see trolls is, you know, if you're that unhappy that you feel the need to lash out at people online anonymously, it doesn't make me angry. It just makes me sad. And it, it makes me sad for that person. So um, trolls don't get to me maybe the same way that they would get to somebody else. I, I kind of just take it with a grain of salt and and move on. And I, I think that some people, some of the trolls I've experienced, they, they're they so quick to down anything and say, no, none of these things exist. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like that's being intellectually, intellectually curious if you automatically say none of these things exist and this is all nonsense. Amen to that. There, there's far too much important work to be done to even like give these people the time of day. So I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, Well, on the other side, not trolls, I have listeners on my show who had a couple of questions for you. Do you have time? I would love to. Awesome. So Tim asks, what's the weirdest and or scariest thing you've seen or heard while investigating a case? There was a case I, I will... I will dance around it because confidentiality is very important to me and my clients. Yeah. Uh, there was a case of a girl that I had helped with who had been, um, she had disappeared. And we thought that, shame on me, I thought that she was dead. I thought that her mother sold her off for a drug debt. This girl was very active on social media. Um, after this, it was completely cut off. She was hanging around um, some gangbangers MS 13 members. Hmm. All of it was very, very bad. She was 16 years old. And I thought this girl has to be dead. So we worked on it. It was several investigators working on it. And she ended up popping up in another country. She had been sex trafficked. But reading the after action reports of some of the things she had experienced, how they were able to move her out of the country, and the type of people we were dealing with, really made my blood run cold. They're very dangerous, ruthless people who dehumanize anyone and everyone. Um, you are simply a number to them. You are not a life and they will snuff you out without a second thought. Wow. Yeah. That's tough. I mean, again, like 
we deal with some weird and dark stuff in the UFO field or the paranormal community, but when it comes down to it, I think the scariest thing is what humans can do to other humans always. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that that's tough. I'm... Uh, I'm speechless, to be honest. <laughs> well, and later she was, um, I've continued to follow her, and later she was posting some of the same things online, getting into old habits again, and it broke my heart because I, I thought, you know, I'm not a victim blamer. I don't think it's right to, to blame people, but I just had hoped that she would go in a different direction after the trauma she experienced, and um it just it it hurt me and it scared me to see her going down that same path, uh, being around unsavory people again because there's no, you know, there's no happy ending to that story. Yeah, and oftentimes you think these things are like vicious cycles. You know, when absolutely when you've been surmised as just a number, it's like how do you find your self preservation again? So that's that's sad. I, I I hate hearing that. We can only hope that she finds some sort of you know closure or or self-worth at the end of the day absolutely absolutely and and i will put in a little psa parents you know definitely raise your girls to be aware of what's going on and to to know their own worth but raise your boys to treat women with respect and realize that no means no and anything yes than an emphatic yes is absolutely no because there was a lot of things playing into that case where you know i just thought as a mother, I thought if these, if all of these people just would have been raised better with more respect for other humans, we wouldn't be in this position. And there were some serious parental failures on all sides that contributed to this girl being sex trafficked out of the country. Amen. I, I couldn't say it any better, Jen. Um, I guess getting a little more light, uh, Robert asks, are you still skeptical or have any investigations changed your mind with mysteries decoded robert i will always be a skeptic because that is my job but were there things that happened that i can't explain absolutely and i would love to explain them away i would love to explain away anything paranormal with science i i love science i love logic i love reasoning you know my life on camera as an actress is where i kind of explore just the artsy side of things. But as a person, I'm very grounded in reality. So yes, some things have happened. Um, and I wouldn't say I'm a believer per se, but I would say that there are things that we don't understand yet. And my co-host in Salem had said something. She said, everything known to man was at once paranormal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a really interesting point. I'm sure if somebody saw a car driving down a road, you know, in 1800, they would think that that's paranormal. It's just something that hasn't happened yet due to technology. So I th- I think that there's something to be said about that point that she made. And I, I, I just, I think we don't know enough. We don't know enough yet about how the world works, how the universe works, how anything works to completely discount anything. Yeah, that, that's a really good way of looking at it. You know, drop an iPhone back in the, uh, you know, prehistoric oh, times and see what they oh do with that. <laughs> they would think that's pure sorcery. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's it's fascinating to think that way. I, I agree. I think the paranormal is just science we haven't discovered yet at most times. We have... Okay, Chris has sort of a, a relating question. What motivates you to keep investigating? 
Oh my gosh. Um, well, outside of the show, because the show is great because I get to investigate things that I would never be paid for on the outside. No one's going to say, find out what's going on in the Bermuda Triangle. I'll pay for you to go down to Miami. <laughs> That's not a thing. Um, so the show was a unique departure from what I do in my everyday business. But what keeps me investigating is wanting to help people. I get so much just it's such a good feeling to be able to help someone. I had worked with a woman who was looking for her biological father who did not know she existed. She was 60 in her 60s. She's a real estate agent in Northern California. And she said, you know, I've brought this to several investigators. They've never been able to find my father. All I have is his name. And I think he's out of the country. I worked with her and within three days I had located him. He was in Germany. They recently have met each other for the first time and he's in his 80s. So am I the only investigator who could have found him? Probably not, but she had gone to other people and knowing that I could bring that closure to her prior to him passing away, it's such a good feeling and I love being able to help people and in some cases, make their dreams come true because I do work on birth parents who have placed their children for adoption. And, you know, sometimes people don't want to meet, but most of the time they do want to meet. And a good number of those visits, they enjoy themselves very much. You know, I'm, I'm looking into a case right now of a man who disappeared in 2013, and it's very perplexing. But if I'm able to help his parents in any way at all, that's what I want to do. So that's really what keeps me motivated is just being able to bring closure to these families who so desperately need it. I love that. Yeah. Using your skills to help people. If everyone in the world did that, it'd be a much better place. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Steve and Jessica uh, both have kind of a similar question here. Um, in your military experience, did you ever see or experience anything out of the ordinary that was kind of, you know, like swept under the rug or maybe at the time it was not a big deal, but kind of looking back on it now, you think maybe it was little strange or um, unexplainable? Well, I'll say this. I have always been very good at reading people's body language. So something that may have flown under the radar with maybe another sailor, it did not with me. Uh, I grew up in a very tumultuous household. And so I was always trying to read my father and see what his mood was for that day um, to see if I should stay away, how I should act. So I was very much a chameleon from early on, even as a, as a toddler. So there were definitely things at my first command that I saw, that I witnessed, that I heard. Um, I was stationed on a base. Um, it's an island base. And I don't really want to get into what they do there. But I had made friends with um, some of the civilians on the island who they all had security clearances. And so they would invite me to dinner parties, you know, and I was 19, 20 years old sitting at a dinner party with these, you know, 40, 50, 60 something year old men and women who'd, who'd been working in a government capacity for decades with security clearances. And yes, things were said um, that I knew I probably was not supposed to hear. And it's one of those things you take it with a grain of salt. I don't know if those things are still classified. So I, I won't divulge them just out of respect. But mm -hmm. there were definitely things when we shot Area 51 that I knew about that I, I can't and will not say on camera, um, just out of national security reasons. Um, 
So yes, there, there are definitely things, uh, it's not even looking back. It was at the time I realized I'm probably not supposed to know that, Mm -hmm. but I do know it anyway. Um, and I worked in logistics. So there were things that, you know, nothing came onto the ship or nothing came to my command that I didn't order or that I didn't know about. So yeah, for sure, for sure. Now, how all that that fits into, into the grand scheme of things, I can't tell you that, but, um, yeah, there's lots of there's lots of things out there that that fly under the radar that you don't think twice about unless given the context. I can't wait for the next time you and I meet up. I'm gonna have to get a couple <laughs> drinks in you to get those stories out of you. Um, <laughs> Good luck with that, Ryan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our last listener question here comes from Earl, and. Uh, this is a good one. What is scarier or more impactful to you that ghosts or cryptids or aliens uh, may be real after doing your investigations? Well, I would say if 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 all of let's say all of them are real, right? Let's say ghosts, cryptids, and aliens are all real. Aliens, like I said, we don't know what drives them, what motivates them. They could look at what we're doing and say. You are completely trashing your planet. You are killing each other. You're doing all these things. You deserve to be annihilated. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't know the thought process behind what other civilizations could think about what's happening on Earth. So to me, that is probably the most terrifying because we just don't know that. Now, ghosts, they can surely scare the scare the shit out of somebody or, you know, follow (laughs) you around, whatever. Um, you don't hear a lot of stories about ghosts wiping civilizations off the map. Um, with cryptids, it's certainly interesting. Um, you know, it's intriguing. But if Bigfoot is real, he's not tearing people apart limb from limb as he comes across them in British Columbia. So um, I think if cryptids were real, uh, that would be an interesting, intriguing thing. But but extraterrestrials, yes, it, it is very um, it is very worrisome to me, just because if, if we don't even remotely understand the technology behind some of these videos, that means that they are years and years and years ahead of us. That's and who true. knows what could happen with that? Absolutely. And I've had this discussion with MJ Benias a lot. And uh, his, his experience with cultures and belief systems, uh, it rings so true with what you're saying that, you know, ghosts can't take over the world. Cryptids right. are not going to wipe our planet out. I think that's why people are so hesitant to accept that aliens could be real because we potentially don't know what they're capable of. So I agree with you 100%. You know, while I tend to err on the side of believing in aliens, that big part of me inside almost doesn't want to because of that fear of the unknown, of what they could do. Like, bring on the ghosts, bring on the Bigfoots, but at the end of the day, while I may look at UFOs, you know, all the time, there's that small part of me that just kind of hopes that we can prove that they aren't alien (laughs) for that very reason. I mean, from a national security perspective and from a military perspective, I want nothing more than to say these are experimental military craft. We have this technology because if something were to happen, God forbid, like World War Three, I would want to have the best technology capable of ending a war quickly. So I I want nothing more than for this to be homegrown. I, I, I don't know. I mean, when one of the pilots was talking about 
uh, he basically saw a docking station in the ocean. That that's yeah, that is inexplicable. That's terrifying. That's um, you know wh- what is this? This is a man with thousands of hours, thousands of flying hours. He's he's not prone to exaggeration. He's seen lots of things. So that gives me pause. Yeah. Well, sort of closing things out here, Jen. Mysteries decoded. We've got uh, half the season is aired. We got some more stuff to investigate. But um, what are some topics that you'd like to cover if, if given the opportunity to get back out there? You know, I don't know. It's just supposed to be a one-off. It's not supposed to be, you know, an every year sort of show. It's supposed to be a summer filler. Mm-hmm. But if we were given the opportunity to look at anything else. There's something that's really interesting to me that I recently came across that I immediately dismissed as bullshit. But the more I look into it, I said, well, maybe I should look into this. And it's whether or not the Titanic actually sunk. Hear me out. Whoa. Okay. There's a thought process that uh, there's a theory that it was actually the Titanic's sister ship and that it was an insurance scheme. So there's compelling evidence one way that no, it was the Titanic, but there's other things that you look at. There's the list of the ship. Uh, there was a two degree lisp to it. There list to it. There was a certain number of portholes on the sister ship and a certain number of portholes on the Titanic. So there's several things that made me think, well, maybe I should look into this a little closer because the captain had been in two maritime accidents previously for White Star, and he was still made the captain of the Titanic. (laughs) There were, which to me makes no sense from a business perspective. There were also some very hoity-toity, high-ranking people in society who canceled their tickets right before the Titanic took its voyage. So there is... Uh, there, there are things that make me want to look into it, whether or not it's legitimate. I don't know. But if somebody wants to fund my voyage to go see if that's true, I would absolutely love that. Oh, wow. I, I'm, I'm with. Can I go? <laughs> mm-hmm. It'll be great. And, um, you know, we didn't do it this season because we, you know, we didn't do anything internationally with the exception of, of Bigfoot. And that's just up in British Columbia. So. Um, it is really intriguing and whether or not it's true or not true, it's, it's worth the look. Sort of rounding out your military career here, Jen, you do a lot of work with military veterans. And, uh, again, like I said, I'm a big proponent of this as well. Can you tell us a little about your work in this sector and what it means to you? Yeah. You know, when I left the military, it was kind of unexpected. I wasn't planning on leaving and I struggled a lot with the transition. If you can think of all the careers, you know, everybody finds kind of where, where they're comfortable. And I was so comfortable in the Navy. I loved it. Uh, I wanted to make it a career. So when I got out, the transition was so difficult and I was ill on top of that. So it was really hard. And once I got my bearings, I said, you know, I want to help my brothers and sisters however I can. And that wasn't just some selfless act. That act of altruism was helpful to me as well, because it made me feel like I was giving back and it filled that hole that had been there since I had left the service. So I volunteer with veterans in media and entertainment, and I work as a mentor to help veterans who are coming into the film and television arena. 
I volunteer with Pinups for Vets. We dress up as World War II era pinup girls and we visit veterans in hospitals and nursing homes. We dress very modestly, but very colorful. And it's just wonderful to go into these rooms of veterans who haven't had a visitor, sit down with them, share stories of service and just feel that camaraderie again. So I'm very active in the veteran community and I'm very blessed that they've been so welcoming to to invite me and, and, and have me spend time. That's fantastic. And I mean, I, I've seen the outpour of support for you uh, on social networks from the military community. And I mean, no matter anyone's thoughts on, you know, politics or war or the military, it's, it is a community of people who would literally give their lives for one another. And to Absolutely. know that there are ways to still give back and show that appreciation, uh, I wish more civilians would do that. Um, so is there anywhere we can go to to kind of look that stuff up and where people could turn to? Yes. So I have a couple websites and then I have an actual tangible way that listeners can help vets because a lot of people say, thank you for your service, which is well-meaning. Um, but I always tell people, do you want a tangible way? And when I tell them, they're like, absolutely tell me how I can do this. Um, so the first couple websites, um, www.pinupsforvets.com. Um, we have a calendar that we sell to fund our 50 state hospital tour and the calendar has uh, female and male veterans in it. This year it's mainly female. We've done ones with, uh, with males as well, but it's a wonderful calendar, very modest, very beautiful. Um, and that helps fund our mission of getting to visit every state. Um, I would also say if, uh, if you are someone in a position where you say, I'd like to help a veteran, the easiest way you can do this is by putting on your LinkedIn profile that you're willing to mentor a veteran who's coming into your field. Because often we get out of the military, we don't know how to make that transition. Mm -hmm. Let's say you work in hotel management and somebody's going to school for hospitality. If they want to follow in your footsteps, oftentimes they're very hesitant to reach out. So put it in your bio, put a couple asterisks by it. Oftentimes that's all it takes. Veterans, most of us do not need a hand out. But a hand up is very, very helpful in getting reintegrated to civilian life. Um, so also, if you'd like to visit my website, jennifermarshall.com, I do some work in Uganda. I currently sponsor two students to go to school, um, one of whom is he was abandoned by his parents. And so he's an orphan. And the girl that I sponsor is HIV positive. They would not be able to go to school um, without sponsorship. And it really takes a community. I have people who donate money. And because of that, I've been able to sponsor him for the last six years and her for the last three um, so all of that money, uh, donated, if you want to send me a, a, a message on my website, all of that money donated goes to their education, um, and making just life better for, for the kids living in the village, uh, in Uganda where I volunteer. That's amazing, Jen. I mean, you're like the shining example of like what one can do with this journey we call life. Like you're involved with so many different things. It's so inspiring. I, I, I just, I, I want to tell people, Ryan, because I know people get overwhelmed. You don't have to change the world, but you can change the world for one person. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good way to look at it. Yep. That makes all the difference to that one person. And, uh, wow, 
Yeah, well, Mysteries Decoded airs every Tuesday on The CW. Uh, You can stream the show for free at The CW Seed. I can't wait to see where you're going next, Jen. And again, (laughs) thank you so much for coming on today. And thank you so much for having me, Ryan. It's always wonderful when I get to work with you. And I know that we'll have the opportunity in the future. I can't wait. Oh, we ain't done. That is it for this week's episode. Again, my thanks to Jennifer for coming on. Please be sure to check out the Area 51 episode on Tuesday, September 10th on the CW Network. Check your local listings for times and stations. This Tuesday, September 3rd, our episode on the Roswell case will re-air as well, so be sure to check that out if you haven't seen it already. All of the episodes of Mysteries Decoded that have already aired are available to stream for free on the CW Seed app. Visit cwseed.com to learn more. If you happen to live in the Michigan area, I'm going to be speaking at the Michigan UFO Contact event in Houghton Lake, Michigan, on September 20th and 21st. Join me, Mike Barra, Andrea Perrin, Frank Chili, Nick Redfern, John Tenney, Bill Konkoleski, Cheryl Costa, Tim Woolworth, and Brad Blair and Tim Ellis all speaking on various topics having to do with UFOs. This is going to be such an amazing event, and I really hope you can make it. To learn more and to get tickets, visit miufocon.com. Again, that's miufocon.com. And I'll see you there on September 20th and 21st. We're on Twitter at Summer Skies and Instagram at Summer Skies Pod. If you have a few moments, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing Somewhere in the Skies on Apple Podcasts, your Android apps, or wherever you get the show. It helps us gain visibility and find new listeners. Thank you again in advance. Thank you also to my Patreon subscribers, to the E1 Podcast Network, KGRA Radio, and especially to you for listening. I'll see you here next week. And remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit entertainmentonepodcast.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.